0: Today, I had a great conversation with Eric Partaker, an award-winning entrepreneur, peak performance expert, and mentor for Fortune 50 CEOs. Eric is the author of The Three Alarms, A Simple System to Transform Your Health, Wealth, and Relationships Forever, which teaches you a technique to create habits through identity change, through the use of three alarms on your phone. It's an amazing conversation, and if you use these techniques, you will change your life for the better. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Eric, welcome to the Growth Guide podcast. Where I'd love to start before we dive into your book, The Three Alarms, is to get the readers up to speed a bit about who you are and what you do so that they're aware of everything as we dive into the book. So can you give a a little brief bio on Eric's history and then we'll dive in? Yeah, cool, awesome. Well, thanks for having
1: me. Excited to be here, Clint. And uh, yeah, so our household is like the United Nations. So I'm half Norwegian, half American. My wife is Brazilian. We live in Portugal. The kids speak like four languages. So it's a real, you know, mixed bag. We're kind of citizens of the world. And that kind of mixture appears within my career as well. So um, I started off as a consultant with McKinsey & Company, then did a bit of nonprofit work for a while, helped uh, in the early days of Skype, back when Skype was cool, <laughs> with the uh, the blitz scaling of that. And then we had a big exit to eBay for a few billion dollars back in, uh, I think it was like 2005, 2006 was missing um, Mexican food, having grown up on it in Chicago. So was trying to figure out what to do next and then built um, what became uh, an award-winning chain of Mexican restaurants in the UK and lived in the UK for a total of uh, 17 years. Lived in Norway, lived in the US, um, now live in Portugal. And these days, uh, my wife and I, we support about 30 uh, CEOs at any one point in time, um, helping them scale their companies, their leadership and themselves. So yeah, that's a quick, uh, quick intro.
0: And Eric, what was the chain of Mexican restaurants? Chilango. Chilango, wow. Yeah, yeah. I, impressive. That was one I, I wasn't aware of. So where, where I'd love to start as we dive into the book is taking you back a little in time, which really was the impetus of the book and of changing your life. And what we're talking about is there was a time when you had a wake up call that you were sacrificing your relationships, your body and your son and for so called success as you had defined it for yourself at that time. I've been where you were for me. It showed up as, as adrenal shutdown, my son not looking me in the eye, not telling me he loved me anymore. And so what was happening in your life that led to that? And can you take us through what that wake-up call looked like?
1: Sure, sure. So um, maybe I'll start at the climax, and then we can go back and then forward. <laughs> so I was uh, on a flight, and my colleague could see that I wasn't well. He ran to get the attention of a stewardess. The stewardess calls for a doctor. Luckily for me, there was one on board. Um, doctor rushes over, takes my vital signs, and says we need to land the plane immediately. Um, he's having a heart attack, and when you hear those words, "35,000 feet in the air," I can promise you, you have never felt more alone, more terrified, more like regretful, like all every negative emotion all rolled into one. The descent felt like an eternity as we, you know, made our way to uh, make an emergency landing, and uh, as I looked up into, it, obviously, we, you know, we reached the runway. I'm whisked away into an ambulance, waiting on the runway. They administered nitrates to open up uh, uh the blood flow to my heart. And I looked up into the eyes of the paramedic looking down at me and I said, please don't let me die. I have a five-year-old son. And he said, you know, I think we got you, you know, just in time. So, you know, sit tight. And the next day when I woke up in the hospital, you know, I thought about, you know, what had gotten me to that point. And as you had alluded to, it was, um, You know, I had always been obsessed with reaching my full potential since I was a kid. But it was, you know, there's two ways you can approach, I think, realize, you know, becoming all that you're capable of being in life. And in the first half of my career, I approached it from a place of lack. You know, like I need this to feel complete. I'm not worthy if, you know, if I'm not, you know, doing X, Y or Z. In, my, in the second half of my career, now, you know, I approach it from a place of abundance, you know, so it's, I'm already complete, but I'm going to add two things. And, you know, I think that was probably, probably emerged from childhood, just this constant feeling of always being second best, this um, fear of like squandering, you know, uh, my potential and that led to a lot of overworking, just a lot of, you know, soul sacrificing. You know, I was doing like 100-hour weeks at McKinsey and Company during the blitz scaling days of um, of Skype, uh building, you know, more than one of my own businesses. Um and so that eventually took its toll because I wasn't looking. I was only trying to put in as many hours as I could at work, and I was doing, you know, the bare minimum to get by on uh you know, the health and relationship front. And, um, and it caught up with me and, you know, my body as described basically said enough is enough. And then that prompted, you know, some deep reflection, uh, cause I still wanted to reach my full potential. That didn't change, but I realized that I had to obviously find a better way. And that started a journey. I you know, went really deep into peak performance. I went, um, you know, really deep in trying to just, you know, understand behavior change and. Uh, neuroscience and uh, you know habit formation and how do I do this all basically without sacrificing my health and relationships and then that's the you know as you correctly pointed out that's the essentially the focus of my book the three alarms which is you know what did the journey look thereafter to get to um, you know where things are today
0: and so when you look at that and, and you talk about going deep into the neuroscience into the habits high performance You talk about using the concept that British Cycling's Dave Brailsford used being marginal gains or marginal improvements. And he used that for the British team and for Team Sky. Can you bring the listeners up to speed on what he was talking about and how you use that concept of marginal improvements in your life?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, for context, you know, as the coach or as like the, you know, the, performance coach you know for the cycling team he his belief was that if you want to optimize performance on the field of play then as any good sports coach you know would be thinking you have to optimize uh, everything off the field of, of play as well it's not enough to just show up and give it your all on game day so that's what I was doing in the first half of my career. I was just thinking of optimizing my performance on the field of play, not off the field of play, you know, like health relationships off the field, on the field, your work. And those three, by the way, you know, health, work, relationships, to me, that's the 80-20 of life improvement. You know, the 20% of things you can focus on for 80% of the improvement you're, you're seeking. I also kind of refer to it as like the three-legged stool. You know, you need minimum of three legs for a stool to have stability. You take out one leg and it starts to wobble. So what he did back, you know, to the to the cycling team example is he looked at you know absolutely everything, um, down to what were the mattresses that the cyclists were sleeping on, and wh- you know what gave each cyclist like the best night's sleep and transporting even those mattresses from location to location. So even their sleep on an individual basis was being optimized. You know the diet being optimized, the training. You know, specific to the cyclist being optimized such that all these small little things added together, whereas individually, you might not think they're worth it because let's say they offer a quarter of a percent of improvement. But, you know, in athletics, you know, if you do 10 things that offer a quarter percent improvement such that you're 2.5% ahead, you know, when you're at an elite level and you're already, say, you know, giving 90%, you know, 925 that's a big deal. that's the championship right there, so where I was going wrong you know prior was that really two things, so I referenced one already. I wasn't thinking about off the field stuff, you know how do I optimize health and and home, but also too i was I was going, you know, you know the whole thing go big or go home like at you know i it sounds great, but it doesn't really. It doesn't work. You know, it's like one of these things that people say and they throw out there and it's kind of like a BS thing. I was swinging for the fences every single time, you know, so, oh, I got to, you know, you know, knock this project out, you know, of, of the park. Okay. Well, let's put in why a hundred hours? Let's put 120 hours this week into it. Right. You know, that, that stuff doesn't work. So examples of, um, you know, how I started to change. Well, one was I noticed this tendency within me for perfectionism. And that not only would, um, lead to taking way too long to do just about anything, but it also meant that um, I often procrastinated because I didn't have enough time to get started or I didn't have enough time, you know, to get finished. And so it just made everything drag on and on and on. And I really zeroed in on the 80-20 law as the best way I could combat and cure my own perfectionism. So 80-20 simply says that, you know, the world is nonlinear and a minority of things create the majority of effects. So, you know, I referenced 80-20 earlier with health, work, and relationships. You know, 20% of the factors you could focus on life, you know, for 80% of the improvement you know, that you're seeking. 80-20 in the context of a project could be if I'm working on, let's say I'm working on a presentation. And for me to deliver, you know, a perfect presentation, let's assume it's going to take five hours to complete. Well, the question is, if you were to give it your all for just one hour, 20%, could you create something that was 80% good enough, such that you free up those next four hours to do whatever you like, work less, or move on to the next thing, right? And so you know, and if you do that mathematically, right? Like, let's let's talk about an economics um, class. Like, it, what was it, utils, right? So it's like if you're going to put in a hundred, right, and you get one hundred of value in terms of the presentation, you get one hundred utils, right? But if, and that takes five hours to produce. If I'm going to do one hour and produce something worth eighty, I got eighty in that one hour. But now if I do that for the next four hours and get eighty in each of those as well, eighty times five hours, four hundred. So literally the 80, 20 rule. In a way, mathematically speaking, can allow you to 4x your output just by looking at, you know, the, uh, looking for leverage, right? What's the 20% of effort I could put in for 80% of the result? Now, this doesn't, of course, apply in all situations. And you have to respect that, you know, I'm just, you know, using this as an example, right? To help, you know, free up your thinking. Um, you know, in manufacturing, you can't get away with like 80%. You need like, But there's other interesting ways to approach that as well. And I'll give one more example of how I started to, um, put less on myself. So 80-20, you can 80-20 something yourself, but then you could delegate it perhaps to someone on the team, right? So you do a first draft, you get it to 80%, and then you hand that off to someone and you ask them, can you 80-20 the remaining 20%? right? Mathematically, what does that get us to? Well, that's 96%. 96% is usually, you know, good enough, right? That would be a good result. So yeah, I mean, yeah, that's just one example of how I started to, you know, free myself up to do more with with less, essentially.
0: Let's stay on this one for a minute, because the 80-20 principle is massive in my life as well, and I, I write about it a fair bit. It's one of the reasons you can do some of the things that other people say, hey, you can't drink Starbucks or eat avocado toast and be a millionaire. And it's like, well, if I'm focusing on the right 20% of things consistently, I can do other things at at the edges that aren't actually going to have an impact. So when you think about the 80-20 rule, one of the good examples you use that can bring it around to people is this concept of diet or health. Mm. and how the 20% applies to your diet or health. Because the second half of the 80-20 rule is something that you and I both align on, which is the simple line that most of these things are simple, but they're not easy. No. (laughs) So how does simple but not easy tie to the 80-20 rule if we look at something like physical fitness or diet? Yeah, right. So,
1: I mean, a few things, you know, uh, come to mind. So first of all, let's start with the fact that typically everyone who wants to get in shape, me included, right? I'm I'm in a phase right now, actually, where I'm like, okay, time to get into a little bit of, you know, better shape here. We can easily overwhelm ourselves, right? And we, yes, there's, I mean, there are, so let's just talk about like the 80. I mean, this is meta. I'm just like literally thinking out loud right now, but let's just talk about like the 80, 20 of a improving anything. So first of all, if you take the non-80-20 approach to let's develop an improvement plan, you can get lost on the internet, because there's a million different ways that you could probably get into shape. Um, There's a million different diet plans out there. That's not really the issue. The issue is just picking one, any of them, really, like just any of them, because they all are linked to the primary you know the uh, another level of 80 20 here so what's the 20% of things you know to focus on to actually lose weight well just consume less calories than you're, you know, are you require right and just about i don't I don't think there's a diet plan on the planet that is about you and i'm not talking about bulking up as a bodybuilder i'm talking about losing weight plans i think they're pretty much all aligned on yeah you got to eat less than what you need it's not like Hey, you're going to lose weight by eating ice cream. <laughs> you know? um, so you know that's the the first thing that comes to mind is is just like just pick one thing, you know, to, rather than try to do a million things. And then when it comes to getting in, you know, into shape, there's like a few things again to not get lost in it all uh, to focus on. So first and foremost, I would just focus on sleep. If you don't sleep well. You're going to be, you know, if you wake up tired, you're going to be more prone to, you know, snacking. You're going to be more prone to not following through on your routines, such as, like, working out. I even think biologically speaking, and I'm not a scientist here, but I'm fairly certain that if you're not well-rested, it even messes up the way your body converts calories um, and you're more likely to put on uh, fat, you know, essentially. If you're
0: very sleep-deprived, for sustained periods of time, your mind or your brain says, the only time someone is this sleep deprived is when they're in a state of starvation. So let's conserve calories. I read that one recently. I'd have to definitely, you know, internet people fact check us, but it's the brain saying, hey, usually when someone's in this state, it comes with starvation, i.e. our ancestors couldn't go to sleep because they needed to hunt food. So let's go into a state of preservation of calories. And yes. so we bulk up because we're not sleeping, not only the bad food choices, but so I, I believe exactly. you are correct on that one.
1: Yeah. So, so you get sleep. Um, the next thing you know to think about is exercise. And I'm saving, you know, it's probably the biggest problem and also dial mover for the last, uh, last one, but exercise. And I think people, You know, most people would benefit from doing a combination of strength and and cardio within a week. You know, and the way I approach it is three cardio sessions, three strength sessions a week. Um, you can do them on the same day if you want, you can break them up. And then last but not least, you know, I think 70% of the results you get from fitness routine will come down to um, what you're eating because you can eat a ton of crap and then it feels like you're going nowhere. Doesn't feel like you're getting stronger. It doesn't look like you're getting stronger. And if you look at nutrition, you know, one of the commonalities, again, here's another example of 80-20. So across all the eating plans out there, one of the most you know, common set of things, factors that you'll see is, you know, eat whole foods, you know, mostly plants, you know, don't eat, you know, eat real food, mostly plants, don't eat sugar basically. I think Michael Pollan says this in one of his books. I forget which one it was. And when we talk about eating real food, what, like, what does that mean? Well, if it has an ingredients label on it, it's not real food. Yeah. That's the way I look at it. Right. Because, you know, a potato, what does a potato say on it? Potato. <laughs> There's nothing else to say. Carrot, carrot. You know, but if it has ingredients, a pasta. You know do you find pasta growing on trees? No, does it have an ingredient list? Yes, uh, you know, just you know so so real food is a stuff that you know, typically doesn't have an ingredient list that you could just find right in nature. And you know sugars sound self-explanatory, but it's not just candy bars. you know drinking loads of fruit juices, for example. that doesn't help, right That's not how nature intended it right? An apple is delivered with its juice connected to the fiber of the apple so that you don't get a massive sugar rush, you know, as you're eating it. You juice the apple and you don't have any of the fiber that it's coming with. You know, you're basically getting like nature's equivalent of a candy bar. So those few thoughts and examples about how to kind of simplify what to focus on with regard to health.
0: And so if we look at that and we talk about you know, it's, it, I always come back to, there's an old video that was on the internet when I was much younger called The Fat Smoker, and his recipe for weight loss, because he became not the fat smoker, which was the whole point of the video, was, you know, people always look for the magic bullet, and he's like, eat less, exercise more. So when you go right down to bare bones simplicity, weight loss, eat less, exercise more. And most things in life are that simple. You want to be more financially independent? Earn more, spend less, right? Like we can always boil it down to that level of simplicity. But that level of simplicity isn't easy. And you highlight, it's the magic button, right? You have your magic button exercise. If you could press this and you could be X, would you want it? And people say, yes. Now it's simple to get there, but most of us don't get there. And that's because there are common blockers in our way. You already talked about one of them being perfectionism. You talk about four others. Can you let the listeners know at a high level, what are some of the things that are blocking them? And can we deep dive into procrastination together? Because that's one that you go a little deeper on. You have your four steps and we, and we can talk about that one a little deeper. But high level, what are the things that are blocking people from doing what's otherwise simple?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think at the deepest level, it's this false belief that you need to want or to like or to desire, you know, everything that you do in life. We have a great life right now. We live in Portugal. You know, I, I don't don't work a, a full week are there still things on a daily basis that I have to do that I don't want to do? Yeah. All the time. Um, and I think, you know, when people, I think when, 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 you go through life requiring, you know, everything to be exactly as you would like it you know, to be, then you're just setting yourself up for, for failure. And that's also too one of the triggers of procrastination. So in the course of a day you will have to, I mean, nobody ever procrastinates on something that they absolutely want to do. Right. And that they're excited to do. You don't need, you know, procrastination, overcoming procrastination techniques for that. Do you need overcoming procrastination techniques to do your tax return? Yes. Because ever going to want to do their tax return? I mean, maybe, maybe there's some accountants out there that, you know, relish in the moment every year, but not for me. And that's, um, you know, a segue to one of the simplest procrastination, uh, tactics that I've used is recognizing uh, the self-talk that goes in your head. So when if you were to verbalize what you're saying in the moment that you are starting to procrastinate, or you feel the procrastination coming on, there is a sentence going on in your head that probably is along the lines of, I have to, you know, finish whatever it is, you know, or I should be doing, you know, whatever it is. And this is language of oppression, right? You're being forced to do something you don't want to do, I have to, or you're being compared to an ideal that you're currently not satisfying. You know, I should, you know, but I'm not. Either way, that's gonna create resistance. It's a natural response. The self-defense tactic is procrastination, right? So that's what happens. If you feel like you're being forced to do anything, well, what do you do? Well, I'm not gonna do it, and so you put it off. So if you instead start to get into the habit of recognizing when this negative self-talk is happening and change the language to language of choice rather than language of oppression and simply use the construct of I choose to instead of I have to, right? You don't need to like doing a tax return, but you can still choose to do it. Uh, and that's better than, oh, I have to do it. And instead of focusing on the finish, as in I have to finish, if instead you focus on the start, because I have to finish, well, how long is it going to take to finish? I don't know. That's hard to estimate. That's going to trigger overwhelm. How long does it take to start? Well, that happens in a second. Right? So instead of I have to finish, I choose to start. And and then you need to make it super small. Um, And you can add a further element to that construct. I choose to start for just five minutes. And when I tell myself that, okay, I got to do my tax return. Oh, I don't feel like doing this. Hang on. I choose to start for just five minutes. I never know when that 300 seconds has gone by, right? Because you just get lost into what you're doing. You know, it's like they say, you know, that the hardest part about going for a run, they say, you know, is putting on the trainers, right? So it's like similar concept here. You know, it's physics, right? You know, a body, once, you know, a body in motion tends to stay in motion. So, you know, the most important thing is to find easy ways to get the ball rolling and create motion. Just if you can get past that initial feeling of resistance, then you kick in, you know, with, to the, the momentum effect.
0: Yeah. You know, whether it's the two minute rule or the five minute rule, basically the starting gets you going. Right. So in number one thing for people, whatever it is you want to do, if you want to be a runner, we'll go run for two minutes. It'll become 10. It'll become 20. You want to be a writer, write for two minutes, it'll become 10, it'll become 20. And if you do that consistently enough, you're going to become what you want to be. So that's a a beautiful way to do it. So earlier in the conversation, you talked about it, but we didn't go into it, was the concept of the three-legged stool. And I believe you said health, wealth, and relationships. Can you talk a bit about that? And then we'll dive into some of the things that people can do to improve in these different areas of their life.
1: Sure. Yeah. So, and when I say wealth, I mean both, you know, how you make the money. So what you do for work and then what you do with the money thereafter. Um, Some people just want to refer to it as work, health, work and relationships, health, wealth and relationships, um, whatever floats your boat. But this for me is the, as mentioned, the 80-20 to life improvement. And I recognized that I had been over tracking on the work front and not paying enough attention to the health and relationship fronts. And one of the most powerful things that I learned from one of my early mentors, I remember he said to me, Eric, rather than try to gradually change yourself, which takes a long period of time, it's much easier just to switch to a new identity so that you can change instantaneously. And that might sound like far-fetched and a bit superhero-ish. It is superhero-ish in the fact that When you were a kid, you used to do this all the time. You used to change into a superhero, and in a moment's notice, your behavior matched your identity. And so, really, what this is, is not something new to any human being on the planet. It's more about reigniting a dormant, you know, a capability that's gone dormant, typically, you know, after the age of 13 or so. Um, Reigniting this ability to, instead of creating the new you from the bottoms up, building it behavior after behavior you go back to how you used to do things as a child you create it top down where you decide what the identity is and then that drives the behavior and if you know anybody listening uh who has kids and if you can't remember your own you know childhood you'll know this to be true with your kids right you know we bought our youngest son a Captain America shield the shield arrived we gave it to him and he instantly became Captain America. We didn't have to sit him down and do behavioral training, and that's, once again, because identity drives behavior. So how does this relate to health, work, and relationships? Well, I decided to create superhero identities in each of those domains and give them a name, and identities that meant something to me, identities that represented me at my best in each of those domains. So on the health front, I chose the phrase world fitness champion. I'm not one. I never will be one. But that's the version of me, strong, focused, disciplined, that shows up at the gym in the morning, especially on the mornings that I don't feel like working out. Because would a world fitness champion need to feel like working out in order to do the workout? Never. would just get it done, whether they felt like doing it or not, right? on the work front the identity i'm using at the moment is world's best coach again are there better coaches out there i'm sure there are but that reminds me how do i need to be showing up today for you know the the 30 ceos that i help as a uh, as a ceo coach and then on the relationship front my kind of superhero identity is world's best husband and father again i'm not but i know for a fact that before i had that level of intentionality on the home front i just drifted right when i decided what this identity was and actually put it into my phone and timed it for a certain time of day so i took that identity world's best husband and father i timed it for 6 30 pm put it on my phone to prompt the question how would the world's best husband and father walk through that door right now and when i started to have that intentionality defining what best looks like, setting a reminder on my phone to cue it at the right time of day. Over time, I started to close that gap between my current and best self on the home front. And then I did the same thing with those other identities. I 6.30 a.m., I put an alarm on my phone that's a world fitness champion to cue that identity. And at 9 a.m., I put an alarm on my phone that says world's best coach, again, to cue that identity. The point isn't these phone alarms, that's just like a funny, you know, a fun way to kind of mess around with it. But they're like training wheels on the intentionality bicycle. The point is to become more intentional in your life in each of these three areas and find a way of checking in with it, reminding yourself so that, again, you can close the gap between who you are and you know who you're capable of being.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoy what you're hearing so far and want me to be able to get your favorite guests on this show, please do me a quick favor, subscribe to the show and leave me a rating. The 30 seconds of your time will mean a ton to me. What I really want to zone in and dive a little deeper on with you there is is this idea of you talked about through most of your life, you drifted. And then you brought a level of intentionality to each of these areas. And intentionality to me seems to be the number one way we can bring ourselves off of autopilot, which is often the way most of us live our lives. And so what was it that highlighted to you that you needed to bring that level of intentionality And so you've talked about crafting those identities. How do you make the behaviors and habits stick? And how do you keep that level of intentionality in your life and not get back into autopilot? Right. Okay. And uh, sorry, remind me, what was the first question? How do you make the behaviors stick? So you've got the identity you want to create. How do we make that permanent? How do we go from, okay, this idea of Clint's going to be the best dad. How do I stay that best dad? And I think intentionality may be part of that.
1: Yes. Great question. So it's all well and good to, you know, choose these identities, but you then need to evidence them on a daily basis. And that's something that I've sort of gamified. So, I think of these identities as like the champion versions of me is another way i think about them and so on a daily basis i think what are the champion proofs you know almost like mathematics right like how am i going to prove today that i'm a world fitness champion how do i prove today in the context of today based on today's schedule meetings work that i need to do how will i prove that i'm the world's best ceo similarly on the home front what am i going to do that will evidence that i'm the world's best husband and father and i do this every single day and all i do is i just choose what the number one thing is that i can do in each department and if the whole day went to you know crap and, uh, and i hadn't achieved anything but as long as i achieved those three things i'd still feel you know pretty good now i'll give you some examples so Let's say it's a cardio day for working out and I know that I don't know uh, I did 600 calories you know on my stationary cycling session well I'm going to be asking, okay well if I was to step it up today can I do 650 on the work front there might be a, um, a proposal that I want to get out and I, you know, I just tell myself no matter what, that is going out today you know that's the number one thing I could do today. Or it could be even simpler. It could be that I have a day full of meetings, but I look at one in particular and I go, you know what, that one out of all of them, that's the most important one. I'm going to really show up at my best in that meeting and make sure I actively participate rather than passively kind of, you know, exist. And then on the home front, in the context of a day, I might just say, you know what, I'm just going to You know, send my wife a nice note or something, or make sure um, I spend, um, you know, a little bit of time playing, um, you know, a game with one of the kids. The point is, is you could pick literally anything. And it's about just getting into the habit of asking yourself, what does best look like today? And what's the number one thing I could do to evidence that? And when you start to do those things, you know, if you, if you picture this like a dartboard, So there's a dartboard on the wall, and the bullseye is you at your best. And on a daily basis, you start out with three darts. A health dart, a wealth dart, and a relationship dart. And when you choose your number ones, you're throwing them. And over time, I guarantee you, even if you suck at darts, over time, you will get closer and closer and closer to that bullseye. Every time you throw... And go for a number one on a daily basis. However small it is, it's a repetition. You're developing skill. You're developing the ability to bridge the gap between you know strategy and execution in a way, right? It, having the intention to doing something and actually doing it. So that's yeah, that's the way I think about these things, and um, you know how I kind of connect them
0: together. And so a few things that I'd love to dive deep with you on there. So when you look at this idea that a big part of that intentionality, you look at my day tomorrow, and these are the things I'm gonna focus on. So there's a level of intentionality of realizing you own your time, and so you're designing your day. And so that's something you talk about in the book, but you also just brought up there. Can we dive into the importance of taking ownership and control of designing your day, and then how do you use the what gets measured gets managed to look back and say, hey, how did my week go? And then how did my quarter go? It seems like that's your rhythm and cadence is to analyze your weeks and analyze your quarters, but also within the day have evening routines to wind it down and morning routines to rev it up. What does that look like in terms of ownership and intentionality and purpose-driven life design?
1: Yeah, well, let's start with the day. Because if you, if you look back over a period of time, and if you view that period of time as successful versus kind of like neutral versus unsuccessful, your answer will very likely relate to how many of the days during that period of time were winning days, you know, days that you felt proud, days that you showed up and did what you said you were gonna do, days where you did your best. Now, to achieve that, there's three routines that I install in my day. And I start with an evening routine because a productive day never begins the morning of, it begins the night before with how you shut down that day. And there's an acronym that I follow. SD8. So like sedate, right? If you creatively, you know, pronounce it. The S is a shutdown ritual. So last half hour before I would like my day to end, I do a final scan of my email. I update my to-do list. I look at my calendar for the next day. I choose the top three things I want to do and I schedule them into my calendar as appointments with myself one hour before I go to bed such that I'll get eight hours of sleep. I do a digital sunset and the digital sunset is simply all electronics off, helps calm the mind and also helps with your melatonin production because artificial light, especially from your devices in that last hour before bed can reduce your melatonin by 50%. And we need melatonin to promote deep sleep. Without deep sleep, we don't wake up feeling productive. We don't have a winning day, right? And then, you know, the eight, as mentioned, for eight hours of sleep. Next routine is a morning routine. Mine consists of a few things, but I think in the, in the simplest simplest way to recommend a morning routine would be to just focus on like two factors, really. So one is, if, if possible, try to spike your energy. You know, so a bit of exercise, you know, proven if you have a bit of vigorous exercise, That's proven to spike your mood for up to 12 hours, equivalent in strength to taking an antidepressant. Uh, 12 hours, that's enough to get you through your day. So if you can exercise in the morning, it puts you in a good mood, spikes your energy. And then the other thing that I try to do is always be creative before reactive. So for the first hour of the day, right? Don't start in your inbox. Don't start in social media. If all you did from what what I'm suggesting here in terms of productivity, if all you did was without fail block the first sixty minutes of your day to work on your most important task that alone right there would be a game changer for you if you had a you know a rule you know and you could make something crazy in your head like if, <laughs> there's a there's a man next to me, and if I work you know on anything other than creative output, I'm dead I' <laughs> you know, turn it into to squid game you know. <laughs> You know, then you'd just be amazed, right, if, if you were creative before reactive. You know, what should you be working on? Whatever you had decided in the shutdown routine the night before was your no, number one task. That can go into that first hour of the day. And then the last routine is a working routine. So as you start your work day, you know, how do you approach work? And the single biggest move that you can take there is to focus on single tasking. So in the book, The One Thing, they talk about a study. I think it was based out of Stanford University that showed that the average person loses about 28% of their workday to multitasking ineffectiveness, which is essentially task switching. Now it doesn't sound like a lot, but 28% extrapolated across the work weeks in a year is an entire 13 weeks lost per year, meaning the average person loses a calendar quarter every year. It's like playing a basketball game you get to the third quarter, you finished, you're ready to start the first, fourth quarter and the referee says, oh no, forgot to tell you, you have to sit out. And you're like, well, how, how the hell are we going to win? You know, the other team's still shooting. Well, you're not because you're only playing with four quarters, uh, three quarters in your year instead of four. So if you focus on single tasking, not jumping around, but just do one thing at a time, you can reclaim those 13 weeks a year. So that's I'll take a pause there for a moment. But that's, that's how I approach a day in terms of evening, morning, and workday routines.
0: Now, a natural question that's going to jump out to the listener may be, well, Eric, that's great, but you also run your life. You own your business. You're a solopreneur or an entrepreneur. You don't have the same demands on your time that I do as a worker bee in a system that has less choice. So how do I use what you're talking about to better my life? What, what do you throw at that, that listener? Yeah. So first of all, don't
1: recognize that out of those th- three routines that I just mentioned, uh, the bookends of your day, the evening and the morning, you have the most control over those. So you'd be crazy to not take advantage of those, right? Yes, The you, know, you, you have the messy middle, which is has different degrees of messiness depending on you know what your life situation is and you know what your work situation looks like but absolutely take ownership of the bookends of the evening and the morning number 2 this sort of stuff is you know great to have a conversation you know about with the people that you're working with start off a productive conversation you know uh, explain that I would love to be even more productive in my role. I think that as a team, while we're producing at X level, we could probably produce at an even higher level if we could agree some standards in terms of, you know, what's a reasonable response time when someone messages you? Can we agree some standard as a team of when we Um, acknowledge that we're all kind of, you know, heads down doing focused work so that even if we send a message, we're not expecting a response. You know, that cuts across a week. It's like 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. where it's going to be, you know, focused work for everyone. Or maybe it's certain days. Mondays and Tuesdays are meeting days. Wednesday is a no meeting day. And then Thursday is meeting days again. And Friday is something else. But I think when you're in an environment where you're not You know, the in in full control uh, from a work point of view, then it really ups the um, requirement on kind of communicating the why with the rest of the team and getting some buy-in on on certain things to try in terms of communication standards and like protected focus
0: time. Love it. And then, how do you so having those string of successful days is super important how do you use your weekly review and then quarterly review to make sure that you're on track? And, w- and when you look at the quarterly one, do you do any, you know, you have the, the 90 day year that people talk about, is that something that you employ in your life? Is there a, some a big reason for the quarterly review that drives the years?
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, great question. So on a weekly basis, uh, super important to set up a review. I think the I've experimented with a lot. It's always changing. I think the ideal time to do it is on a Friday afternoon so that you can kind of go into your weekend knowing you got next week covered. And what I do in a weekly review is um, I look at what went well for the week, what could have gone better, what did I learn. I look at the calendar that's just passed. I look at the next two weeks ahead. I check in with my goals and then I ask myself, what are the three most important things that I want to do this week? And then I schedule those things once again into the calendar. So that means that you're both doing that scheduling into the calendar on a weekly basis and then kind of reconfirming and checking in as part of your shutdown routine on, the, on a daily basis too. And I get to the end of the week and I complete that, that review again. At the end of a quarter, I'm doing the exact, you know, pretty much exact same thing, but just quarterly version of it, right? So it's, you know, what went well, what didn't, is there any, you know, unfinished business from the quarter? You know, what are the key things that I learned? And, you know, what actions will I take next quarter, you know, as a result? And that kind of level, that constant introspection combined with deciding, you know, being intentional about what you're going to work on and when, again, has a a hugely you know positive effect on on what you, you can or, or can't achieve.
0: I love that. The I'm a big fan of what gets measured, gets managed in all areas of our life. So that's pretty pretty big right there. And the other concept that I'd love to dive into with you is this idea that when we're wanting to be productive, having those massive goals equals massive results. And I often say to people, when you think of a concept like 10X your performance or 10X your profitability, whatever it is you want to 10X, one of the reasons we use that idea of 10X is you can incrementally improve anything without necessarily having to change how you're doing it. But when you want to 10X something, you have to redesign the whole process if you will you have to choose a new identity you, you can't just incrementally improve the old identity so why is the massive goals equals massive output so big for you and how do you use that in your life this one you got to be very
1: strategic with because as i mentioned at the start of um, our conversation you know i have fired a warning about the whole phrase, you know, go big or go home, right? So that may sound then, this conversation may sound like it's contradicting that, but so that's why I wanna explain. The, the go big or go home reference is, we have to be careful with that if you're, you know, if you're applying that to absolutely everything that you do. But not all things are created equal. If you look back on on your life right now, you know, just think, right, if you go back, Your life, there were forks in the road where you went right instead of left and something bad happened, or you went left instead of right, and you know, boy, was that a good decision, and it had a you know, a ricochet effect on the rest of your life thereafter until the next major fork in the road. You know, again, life is non linear, and there are you know, not all decisions are created equal, and so it takes a bit of art to think through, okay, well, where does it make sense to go big? Where would achieving a certain thing, you know, have a positive ricochet effect on, you know, other aspects of my life? And I'll give you an example from my own, you know, my own background. So, you know, at one point in my career, I doubted, um, you know, myself as a CEO. And I spoke to, you know, business, my my business kind of coach and mentor at the time, and asked him, you know, what were his thoughts? And he said, well, you know, you just need to step it up. You just need to, you know, believe in yourself, but you need something, you know, to help you in that respect. And he said, what about the CEO of the Year Award? And there was, uh, you know, a National CEO of the Year Award in Britain. And I said, okay, well, that sounds a bit crazy to go for that. And that's like over the top. I just want to kind of shore up some of my leadership abilities. But that was an example of by choosing a massive goal like that, it prompted me to take massive action, action that I wouldn't have normally taken. So I really invested a lot of time in my leadership development, more time than I would have normally. I reached out to top performing CEOs to interview them to understand what drove their success. I you know, really spent a lot of time with my team you know, to understand, you know, from their point of view, how could I be a better leader? And then all of that factored into my own leadership development plan, which culminated in winning this CEO of the year recognition. So yeah, that's, you know, an
0: example. So, you know, we've gone through a lot of the ways we can make life better, we can be more productive. And you talked a little bit about the three alarms that you use to take on those identities at different points of your day. I didn't dive too deep into that one with you at the time because I wanted to wrap the book up with the three alarms. So can you take the readers through how do you use your your iPhone and the naming capability that you have on it to choose the three identities that you have? And how you're going to enter those states each day, which are the three alarms that we can set up for our health, wealth, and relationships.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I mentioned this a bit earlier, but if you go into your your phone, if you go into the alarm section, um, when you go to set an alarm, you'll find that you can either you know change its name or its label, and you can have it say something essentially. And so, what I did is, you know, literally went in created an alarm that said World Fitness Champion, timed it for 6.30 a.m. because that's the time that I work out and that's the time I want to be reminded of that identity. i created an, another alarm for 9 a.m. that says World's Best CEO because that's when I'm sat down, World's Best Coach, sorry, because that's when I'm sat down and I want to be reminded, okay, well, how do I need to be showing up for the CEOs that I serve? And then at 6.30 p- uh, p.m., another alarm, World's uh, Best Husband and Father, because that's typically when I'm wrapping up my day and going from the office into the house, and I want to prompt the question in my mind, how would the world's best husband and father walk through that door right now? Yeah, so it's just a matter of going into your phone and choosing an identity, giving it a name, the superhero version of you in each of those domains, health, wealth, relationships, and then setting it at the most appropriate time of day that would benefit from being you know, reminded of what best looks like for you.
0: Now, if I'm setting five alarms, am I trying to bite off more than I can chew? And do I need to work? Okay. Okay. That was the, damn, that was the first question. (laughs) I think so. Because
1: it's slippery slope then, right? And we need, you know, this is like a meta application of Parkinson's law, right? So it's like, we need to contain things or else they'll drift. You know, it's sort of like Warren Buffett, the Warren Buffett story where he's like, um, You know, what are the top 25 things that you want to do? Okay. Now, what are the top five out of those 25? Okay. So those are the five that you should do. And then the other 20, those are the things that you absolutely should not even come close to touching. Right.
0: Yeah, I love it. And for our listeners who don't know Parkinson's law, work will expand to consume the time that you give to it. So give yourself tight, short deadlines and you'll get the work done because you'll focus on the 20% you need to do, not the, the other 80% actually takes as long or longer than that original 20%. So love that, Eric. Eric, uh, can I fire quick rapid fire four questions we do to end the yeah. show at you? Sure. Okay. So the first is, what is one book you've read that was most influential in your life?
1: I would say the the Now Habit. By Neil Fiore, which is a strategic program to overcome procrastination, which was the inspiration for many of the ideas about overcoming procrastination that I share in my book, The Three Alarms. So, so definitely, yeah, pick up a copy of that. It's incredible.
0: Love it. And this whole time we've been talking, I've been consumed by that bookshelf behind you. So the second question is: is, what are you currently reading? Oh, God. I, I'm one of
1: these people who reads like several things at once. So I have multipliers going at the moment. I have wired for story going at the moment. I never metaphor. I didn't like going at the moment. So I'm in this big kick about uh, multipliers is a book on leadership, but I'm also trying to go deep on the use of metaphor and storytelling. So what was that third one? I could show it to you as well. So it's, um, I never metaphor. I didn't like,
0: Oh, that sounds great. <laughs> I never metaphor. I didn't like, okay. I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to, that's cool. Okay. And what's one thing that Eric has spent less than a thousand dollars on in the last 18 to 24 months that you've thought to yourself, wow, I wish I'd bought that sooner.
1: Less than a thousand dollars on the last 24 months. I wish I would have bought that sooner. Be another book. I bought this book, Inbound Marketing. It's it's one of the HubSpot books. And yeah, I think it was written in 2014. And I'm kind of reading it like nine years later.
0: (laughs) Which can often be good because then you know it stood the test of time. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. And then the last one, because the show's about growth. What is one habit, behavior change, mindset shift you've made in your life that has had the greatest impact on you?
1: Oh, gosh, 100%. It's developing the muscle, the capacity to do whatever needs to be done, whether you
0: feel like it or not. Discipline equals freedom. I love it. So, and some of these guys, like these are things we do when we lead to levels of success. But when someone has a tagline that just fits it so well, yeah. like Jocko does for that one or James Clear on the identity one, every choice you make is a vote for the person you want to be. It's like, oh, Such a good line. So we went pretty wide. We went deep in some of the areas. Is there anything we missed that you want to make sure that we can get across to the listener from this conversation?
1: I I don't think so. I think it's about, you know, with any conversation, it's about uh, zeroing in on where do you think change would have the greatest impact, you know, for you? Like if, if you've listened to this conversation, think of it this way. If you weren't to act on anything at all that you heard today. So basically everything remains as is where would action, just one action have the greatest impact for you or said in another way. If you were to not change at all based on today's conversation, except for just one thing, where would change have the greatest impact for you? And then just start there. Love it.
0: And where can our listeners find you? Uh, just uh, go
1: to the website Eric uh, with a C Ericpartaker.com, and uh, yeah, you'll find a bunch of stuff there, and there's even a, a free uh, digital copy of the the book, the three Alarms there. so: uh,
0: A great read for anyone who's listening, so get to the website. We'll have it in a show notes. Get your free copy of the book. Uh, a wonderful, wonderful read. I now have to take a lot of what we talked about and stick it into my second brain so it's always accessible. And very, very glad to have you on the show today, Eric. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks a lot, Clint. And thanks for all those listening. Thanks for your time.
0: If you like the podcast, you'll love our new newsletter, The Growth Guide, every Thursday, straight to your inbox with the goal to help you be better achieve more, and become financially free. Check it out at our website, thegrowth.guide. Subscribe and learn more.